One of the reasons I love the Psalms is because they do so much for us, right? Like they provide just a variety of things for believers. So, for example, they give us wisdom, like just baseline wisdom on how to live well. So, for example, just humor me. Psalm 1, verse 1 through 3, just launches with wisdom. Check it out. Here's how the book of Psalms just opens. Blessed, which is the Hebrew word for happy. Happy is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, who meditates on His law day and night. Well, that person's like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. Like, that's what I want of my kids. That's what I want of my life. Like, that's good advice, no matter what age or what continent you live on. That's just a good way to live. That's just wisdom. And the Psalms are full of just base wisdom on how to live. Psalms are also full of what, what, um, what we would call theology. That is, the, this teaching about God that tells us who God is. Throughout history, we'd call this doctrine. Just a doctrine of God. And the Psalms give us an understanding of who God is. Like, basic truths about God. Again, theology or doctrine. Some different words we could use. For example, some of the doctrine we've already seen, this, this doctrine of God we've already seen, even in our study up to this point in the book of Psalms. Check this out. Psalm 5, verse 4 and 5. For you are not a God who is pleased with wickedness. For you, evil people, are not welcome. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate, you hate all who do wrong. And then Psalm 7:11, God is a righteous judge, a God who displays His wrath every day. This is a doctrine of God's holiness and a doctrine of His righteousness. He's a righteous judge. Like these are teachings about who God is. I mean, He could be a unicorn. We don't know, right? But the Bible tells us He's holy. And righteous. So we don't talk about him as being a unicorn. You see, the Bible has given us a standard. There is a doctrine of God in the Psalms. I love that. I love that the Psalms give us so much. Like wisdom and doctrine about God. Like these are good things. But probably my favorite part of the Psalms is they give us language. Literally, they give us words for just multiple, uh, multiple life circumstances. The Psalms give us language on how to speak to God when we're happy, when we're frustrated, when we're angry, when we're in a, a, just a pit of depression. The Psalms give us words. And one of the best Psalms for those dark valleys is the one we're dealing with today. It's actually, the literary genre is called a lament. It's a lament. It's a crying out to God. And this one in particular, this one in particular, I find to be really relevant for, our, for us today. Maybe for you, where you find yourself. There is definitely application today for where you and I live. All right, we'll pick up. Psalm 13. If you have a Bible, you can follow along. I'm going to read right through the text. Now, today we're actually going to move through the text uh, in sections. For this lament in particular, this lament of David, is pieced together in sections. So we'll take it in its three sections, okay? 
David begins this lament. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? I think we notice right off the bat the characteristics of a lament. A crying out to God in the pit of despair. A crying out to God in confusion, not understanding why He is where He is. There is anguish here. And here's the thing we don't know. We don't know what's happening in the life of David that would cause this kind of anguish. Like, what's happening? And scholars have debated this for a long time. Maybe it's when his son Absalom rebelled against him and overtook the kingdom. Like, literally took the throne from him for some years and sent David out, running away for his life. I mean, something's happened. Maybe he's hit some type of physical ailment. He's literally sick. And he doesn't think he's going to get better. We just don't know. But whatever it is might be the thing that caused David to also cry out back in Psalm 6. This isn't the first time we've heard David cry out in great despair. If you've ever been in despair, be encouraged. God's people have a way of crying to God in this way. Remember Psalm 6. maybe, Maybe whatever was happening here in Psalm 6, maybe that's what's happening in Psalm 13. There in Psalm 6, David said, Have mercy on me, Lord, for I am faint. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are in agony. My soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord? How long? Maybe, maybe, maybe these are two separate incidences in David's life. What we do know is that there's just not one lament that catches them all. Sometimes you've got to cry out to God on Monday, and it looks a little different on Thursday, and it starts to look a little different on Sunday, but you keep crying out to God. So whatever's happening in David's life, there have been these, these multiple times where he's cried out to God in lament. Here's one of them in Psalm 6. We've got another one in Psalm 13. There's a few things I want to highlight in these first two verses uh, about this particular lament in Psalm 13. So we're going to highlight a few things up on the screen. There's this word forever. Now, we might think of forever as like, like as some type, something on the time uh, continuum, that it's just like today and then it never ends. Actually, the Hebrew word here, uh, some scholars say, actually the word would be better translated as utterly or totally. It's not like, God, will you forget me forever and ever and ever into the future? But what, what most likely is here, David calling out to God, have you utterly forgotten me. Literally, I don't even hit your radar anymore. It's something about the relationship. It's just total forgetfulness. God doesn't even have David in his sight. Which is why uh, we, would, we, might, we might pick up then on how long will you hide your face from me. That is a way of saying, uh, describing displeasure. It's another way of describing displeasure. God's displeased with me. He doesn't like me anymore. He definitely doesn't love me. And he's totally forgotten me. David has, I mean, this, this sense of anguish is all the way to the level of feeling like you have been forgotten by God. He doesn't even see you anymore. So, so just making note of that word. That really, when we get underneath the translation forever, there's actually uh, a better way of maybe understanding what's happening there. The other thing is this. We're going to highlight three more things here in these first two verses. 
there are multiple layers of anguish. It's not just that there's a, there's a relationship problem with God, which we see up there in the first two lines. It's a call out to God, oh Lord, there's a problem between me and you, Lord. But did you see this next thing? It's also something internal. Like, David has got a lot of angst inside of himself. He's got a lot of anxiety. He's fighting within. He says, I wrestle with my thoughts. And then in that next line, I've got it faded, but he talks about having sorrow in his heart. So this idea that it's just a problem between him and God would just be, would just be um, too one-dimensional. David is in anguish to the point where literally inside of himself, he's in turmoil. Which I think most of us, at some point we've hit a moment where you're like in, you're in turmoil inside. You're wrestling with your thoughts. David felt the same thing. And then that last one, my enemy. Surely you've had people in your life you don't get along with. And they have caused great anguish in your life, my enemy. So this whole thing, this whole lament has got multiple layers. There's a relationship problem with God. He feels deeply as if God has totally forgotten him. He's wrestling inside of himself. There's internal angst. And there's something on the outside. There's this external threat. There's an enemy in play. This is like a multifaceted problem. This isn't just a guy who's just singing kumbaya. Everything's going to be fine. A man that's got multiple layers of challenges. So what's he do next? We read on, verse 3 and 4. So he moves from this cry to God, dealing with it, wrestling in his thoughts, and this external enemy that could triumph over him. And he moves next into verse 3 and 4. He says, look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes and I will sleep in de- or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him, and my foes will rejoice when I fall. David, three times, petitions God. He's got three things he's asking God for. We're going to highlight them. Let's go to that next slide. Here it is. Three things. Look on me, answer, give light to my eyes. Now, if we had a lot of time, we'd unpack each of those. But David understands he's confused. I mean, he doesn't think he's got it all worked out, so he's going to God, and he's asking three things. I I need you to to answer. I I need you to look on me, please. And I need light, because my eyes are dark. Give those to me. So even feeling as if God has left him, do you see what's happened? He still goes to God with the petition. Now, the weight of the request, because this is a weighty request, it's a bit hidden. It's a bit hidden in the NIV translation. That's the translation I'm reading from, the New International Version. There are some words in the NIV translation that are hiding the weight of this petition, those three petitions. Check it out. We're going to highlight those three English words, or and an and. In the Hebrew, those aren't the best translations. For those words. Actually, the third and actually has no Hebrew word there. It's just inserted because it's implied. And other translations do the same thing. A better translation for those three words is the word less. So David is actually saying, God, you better act lest, lest I lose it. I die. My, enemy, my enemies overtake me. I come to the end of my rope. 
Either you act or I'm done. But here's the translation and a more literal translation. Here's the way it more accurately reads. Here's the petitions and the weight of those petitions. Let's go to this next slide with the English Standard Standard Version translation here. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over you. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. You better act or I'm done because I'm right here at the end of my rope. That word lest carries a lot of weight. One commentator says this. I just like the way he said it. It almost had a poetic, uh, had, had poetry to it the way he said it. It is at the point of lest that divine grace will save him or let him go. Depending on divine grace, the rope will hold or it will unravel. That's where David finds himself. God, you got to intervene. And if you don't, I'm done. That's where I find myself. Act lest I'm dead or I'm unraveled. And what did David find? I mean, literally, what did David find? Will the rope hold? Here's how he ends the lament. Verse 5 and 6, here's what he says. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for He has been good to me. Will the rope hold? Yes, it will hold. Is it holding right there in that moment? No, it doesn't feel like it. feels like everything's unraveling. He's called out to God, but he gets, makes petitions to God. And when he comes to the end of the matter, he knows grace will step in. God is faithful. Now, there's something happening in the Hebrew here. Now, we see it in the English translation, but you really grab it in the Hebrew David just doesn't say the rope holds. God will be there. God's good. David actually hyperlinks to one of the most substantial words in the Bible. He actually draws on some theology. A particular doctrine of God. He leans in on a particular word that God Himself uses to describe Himself when He reveals Himself for the first time in His fullness Uh, to Moses. There's this moment when Moses asks, hey God, I'd like to see you. Now God's not going to show him everything, but He does give him a glimpse. And God declares with His Word, here's who I am. And when He declares who I am, He uses this Word. It's a Word that's used 250 times in the Old Testament. It's a key Word that sits at the center of the doctrine of God in the Old Testament. That Hebrew word is hesed. Hesed's got a few different ways it's translated, but steadfast love is one of the most popular ways it's translated in English. So check this out. We'll go back into the verses. So when David gets to the point to getting back to declaring praise to God in the first line, he hyperlinks to who God is. He hyperlinks back to this key doctrine of God that God Himself declared in a key moment of His revelation to Moses. And the prophets pick it up. The other pieces of the Old Testament pick it up. The Psalms are going to pick it up again. He says, I trust in your unfaithfulness. 
unfailing love. Some translations are steadfast love. You've got to see that passage from Exodus 34. just don't want you to take my word for it. Moses, here it is. Here's what happens with Moses. Exodus 34, verse 6. I'm coming out of the English Standard Version here. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. David gets to this point in his life where everything seems to be unraveling, both his relationship with God inside himself, with people outside himself, some external enemy or enemies. He says, God, I need you. It's going to be you and you alone. If you don't act, my rope unravels. I'm right at the end. And then he comes to this point in verse four, 5 and 6 where he leans in on this key moment where God declares who he is. David knows it because he's grown up Jewish and he knows the story of Moses when God proclaimed who he was and he says, I will stand on the promise even if I don't feel it, that you are hesed. You abound in hesed. You abound in unfailing love. So I know, even if I'm at the end of my rope, you're not going to let go. One scholar defines hesed this way. Love the way he describes it, particularly right at the end. Here's what he says. The scholar says this. God binds himself to act towards his people with hesed. And he is utterly faithful to his own self-commitment. To put it another way, our hope that God will love us to the utmost and forever is not founded on our ability to keep his commands. Aren't you glad for that? Yeah, you'd be in trouble by lunchtime. Some of you are already in trouble. Yeah, I got out of the house early, so I'm like, I'm doing just fine. Yeah, I didn't even have a chance to get in trouble. Aren't you glad it's not founded on your ability to keep His commands, but rather it's founded on God's ability to keep being God? His faithfulness is dependent on Him, not you. Man! And David leans right in on that. Now, there are a lot of other examples we could use in the Old Testament where people land exactly where David lands. I just want to give you one. If you're reading through the Bible with us, maybe you are. We're reading through the book of Jeremiah right now, right out of the book of Jeremiah. I want to read this out of the New Living Translation. Take take a look at what happened in the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah says this, O Lord, you, you mislead me. You misled me. By the way, that's pretty bold. And you, and I allowed myself to be misled. You are stronger than I am and you overpowered me. Now I am mocked every day. Everyone laughs at me. God, i got a problem with you. This is the beginning of lament right here in Jeremiah. Notice how he ends. We pick up verse 11 through 13. But the Lord stands beside me like a great warrior. Before him, my persecutors will stumble. They cannot defeat me. They will fail and be thoroughly humiliated. Sing to the Lord. Praise the Lord. For though I was poor and needy, He rescued me from my oppressors. You see the theme? God, i got a problem. But I'm asking this of you. And no matter what happens, I'm standing on who you are. Not on my strength. Right there in Jeremiah. Now, right here, we could end and go right into application. But there's one more thing i got to note. Because if we don't get to Jesus, we might miss the boat on this. 
So I want to launch into this last piece of study on that on Psalm 13. It's this. I just decided to go ahead and write it down so we can move quickly right through this. The kind of hope we're talking about, and we are talking about hope. The kind of hope we're talking about is not a psychological trick or a therapeutic strategy. Okay? It's not something that we're doing just to keep us keeping on, keeping on. We're just picking up something that's just flimsy, just so you can get through the day. The reason we have hope, the reason you can land on verse 5 through 6 in Psalm 13, the reason Jeremiah can say what he can say, the reason you can pick that language up and say it right now on this Sunday, is because Jesus is alive. The reason you can proclaim victory is not because your cancer will go away, guarantee you will be healed. Well, sometimes that doesn't happen. But you can guarantee that there's victory over Satan, sin, you can, and death. You can guarantee you got victory over that because Christ is reigning right now. That's why you can do it. This isn't some flimsy hope that we just made up, some opioid for the masses just so you can get through life. Jesus is alive. And because of that, you have guaranteed victory. Paul has something to say about this. He said this to the Corinthians. Paul, very logical here. Here's what he says. If Christ has not been raised, your faith, all that hope, futile. Futile. Go find something else. It'll probably be more fun anyway. You are still in your sins if Christ didn't raise from the dead. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all pity, must, uh, of all people, must be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. I know we like the idea of standing firm. You don't have enough willpower for that to happen. It is Christ and Christ alone. You don't get to verses 4, uh, I'm sorry, we don't get to verses 5 and 6 in Psalm 13 without the resurrection of Christ. But because of the resurrection of Christ, and if you are in Christ, you get the promise. And therefore, it doesn't matter what happens. Cancer can take you. Relationships can fall apart. You will stand firm because He is firm. That's a good thing to live in on. So here's some application. Really, it's just one big application. We're going to break it up into a couple things, and it's really not that profound, because I just want to lean in on, on how you and I pray. You have permission to express your anger, frustration, confusion, and doubt to God. Just so you know, you can do that. Sometimes I think we have this idea that if you bring those things to God, you're not the super Christian everyone thinks you are. No one's a super Christian. Everybody's saved by grace. No one is as good as you think you are. And God is not surprised when you fail. So bring it all to Him. Bring Him your anger. Bring Him your frustration. Bring Him your confusion. Yes, you're allowed to be confused and angry. And you take it to God. You have permission to do that. And you might say, well, what words can I use? Well, there are a lot of English words you could use. I'm just going to suggest that in this one, in this instance, in this case, I don't know that you're going to do any better than Psalm 13. 
Literally, I want to read it again, but I want you now to think of it in the context of something you literally would pray. Like, think about this. This is literally a prayer you could pray later today, particularly if you find yourself in anguish. Right here. I mean, like, hey, God, how long, Lord, will you forget me? Like, totally forget me. How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my, my thoughts? And day after day have sorrow in my heart. And how long will my enemy triumph over me? How long, Lord? How long? I'm pretty frustrated. Literally, just pick them up. Those can be your words. And you might say, well, that sounds pretty bold. It's in the Bible. Just quote the Bible back to God. I imagine some of you have felt this. You may have felt it this week. You may be feeling it now. I love the Psalms because they give us the language. So take it. Ah, well, one more piece. It's this. So you have the permission, but don't stay there. Don't stop asking God for His help. And always remember your victory is in Christ. Now listen, you know I have an allergy to things that sound churchy and super spiritual. I'm not trying to be that here. I literally mean you keep taking your request to God. You don't even have to feel it. God Heal me. God, restore the relationship. God, give me wisdom. You just keep asking God for that and you never forget your victories in Christ. You might say, well, that does sound real churchy. That's reality. The only reason it sounds churchy is because we're so smitten with our secular world where it takes no account of God that we think somehow that bringing God in is somehow unreal. No. Your victory in Christ is the most real thing in this world. It's the thing that's going to make a difference in 200 years for you. Or just 100. Or some of you, 20. It's Christ. That'll be your reality. So stop with all your frustration. Just keep reminding yourself, but the victory is in Christ. No matter what happens, I'm holding on to Him because He will not let go of me. So here's your next step. Here's your next step. It's a bit of practice. Practice praying laments this week. I imagine you've got enough junk going on in your life, every one of you, that you can find a lament in the Psalms that will uh, apply to where you find yourself. Actually, I think for most of us, Psalm 13 would be a great place to start. Now, I'm not trying to make this uber complicated. Watch how this might work. You wake up, you get your coffee. I know some people like to walk around the pool, get themselves... All in order. I get it. I get it. Had a little pushback on read the Bible first before anything else. You shouldn't talk to me, Ollie. It, it all comes back. Um, here's how it works. You get up, you get your coffee, you do your... And you say, I wonder how I'm going to pray today. You open up your app, you open up a Bible. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Ugh. And you know what you keep doing? Reading. Just read it out loud. And then, close the Bible. There's your prayer for the day. You've practiced the lament. And it will train you to state your frustrations to God and land on verse 5 and 6. No matter if it's cancer, a broken relationship, a bad workplace, hard, on, uh, hard finances, no matter where you find yourself, 
practice the lament so that you can end up declaring God's unfailing love. Right where you were. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. These things, we could not make these things up. We would end up in a very different place and we would be a very confused people. Thank you for Christ. His death and resurrection give us hope and so we lean into that hope in everyday life. As we take communion this morning, we're remembering this as well. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your word. We have frustrations, but we know you are steadfast in your love. And so for this, we are grateful and we pray it under the name of him who gives us victory. Because he is stable. You are loving and your spirit is sovereign. And together we say, Amen.